Yes, uh, those of you in the hinterlands of cyberspace, this is Dr. Simon, and my show, as always, uh, is the stories we live by, and today we're going to talk about uh, the uh, uptick in concern about the mentally ill since the horrendous shooting of uh, school children uh, by a young man, I think his last name was Lanza, and um, I have a guest with me today, uh, a good friend, Dr. Lou Wynn, uh, Lou Wynn uh, who I have uh, fought in the trenches with, and will make clear what the fight has been uh, for many years now. Uh, Dr. Wynn uh, is a, uh, a longtime psychologist with his Ph.D., and um, the author of a wonderful book that I really recommend to anybody who would like to get a grasp uh, or an insight uh, on how families and the um, machinations that go on in families can really screw somebody up. Uh, It's called Healing the Hurting Soul, a survival manual for the black sheep in every family. And... uh, Dr. Wynn has also received the 2010 Thomas S. Zoss Award uh, from the Center for Independent Thought. Lou, is, is there still independent thought in America? I think there are a few of us left, but only a few. A few. And the Lou and I consider ourselves having a certain amount of independent thought, uh, and we refer to ourselves as the two dinosaurs <laughs> because... I think we're going to be put out the pasture soon. And let me make some note. If you go into my archive, those of you who listen to my show, um, on 11-7, the show on 11-7-2007, Lou and I interviewed Thomas Zoss, who both of us consider that eventually history will treat him very kindly, uh, unlike how he was treated by mainstream mental health and especially psychiatry during his lifetime. But I think um, uh, his works are like uh, what Daniel Dennett, the philosopher, wonderful philosopher up at Tufts, who wrote a book on Darwin. And he said, Darwin's theory is like uh, universal acid. Uh, It cuts through everything that they throw at it to shut it down. And I feel that Zoss's work ultimately will be like universal acid. Um, And there are two other shows I really recommend uh, because they think they're relevant to the, today's discussion. One was the 2-4-2008 show and the 12-3-2007 show, uh, which had to do with the drugging of children and the uh, preemptive so-called treatment of children to prevent their mental illnesses from coming out or their, uh, treat them when they're young uh, so that they'll grow up to be really healthy, good citizens uh, anyway, so today uh, you sent me this article, uh, Lou. Do you want to tell me a little bit about it? Well, th- this was an article that was uh, uh, printed in the um, uh, Washington Post uh, December 28th. What would that be? Late last week. Written by uh, Kurt Newman, who is a pediatric surgeon. Uh, recently elected, I guess, to president and chief executive of Children's National Medical Center. So he's a heavy hitter. 
is that one would think he would be a heavy hitter. And he said, uh, since becoming the executive of the Children's National Medical Center, I have spent a great deal of time thinking about the larger issues and mental health and blah, blah, blah. And I wrote a little note. I printed it out. I wrote a little note in the margin, and I said, I'm delighted that he is thinking about children and mental health, but I'm wondering what has he read about it? For example, has he read any of Thomas Sass, any of Murray Bowen, any of Jay Haley, or more recently, Robert Whitaker or Jay Joseph? Because if he had read the works of some of these people, uh, and you and me too, of course. Uh, By the way, certainly he, he hasn't yeah, read yeah, Lou Wynn and he, he hasn't, hasn't read Larry yeah, Simon, because yeah, he, both of us have published extensively. Yeah. on and, and, on uh, uh this topic. Yeah, now I would just to extend to extend the title of your series which is uh the stories we live by, uh you could deal with mental health by simply saying that this is one of the metaphors we live by and that was the great theme of Thomas Sass's work, and I, I, we don't intend this to be a testimonial to Tom Sass, but it may end up that way. But it was the great it was the great theme of his oeuvre for 40 or 50 years, which was that mental illness is a metaphor, and it is a metaphor that gets in the way of our effective treating the real problem. And I'll just close my opening remarks by saying that that uh, I, I read uh, I read a quotation uh, just yesterday from my my one of my favorite gurus. This is George Bernard Shaw, who said that no question is more difficult to answer than one where the answer is obvious. And I, I have spent now 40 years uh, dealing with troubled people. Uh, notice I didn't say mentally ill people. I said troubled people. Right. I've, I've, I've dealt in detail with their family histories, with their own histories, uh, and I have never met an individual. And that includes, by the way, the four years that I spent at a state hospital where we had some truly disturbed people. Um, I have never met anyone who had been given the label of any mental illness, from ADHD to schizophrenia to, uh, to bipolar disorder, which, of course, is the uh, disease du jour, the mental disease du jour. Um, but I've never met anyone with such a label who did not have a terrible history of being an unwanted child, being abandoned, being neglected, being abused, uh, with, usually within the family, but not entirely, and... And it started at the earliest age. This very day, today, I saw five people, at least four of whom were, told me that they were not wanted children. Yes. Well, you know, Lou, I, I, I agree with you uh, in some ways, but I really got to take an issue with something else. And that is, there are people who, just because they're human, and you and I know that the snake, that, 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 that the many-headed snake of the mental health field, particularly that's all built on psychiatry, takes all kinds of normal human responses and labels them as mentally ill because they fit the criteria that was created by psychiatry. So, for example, I work in two nursing homes. Pretend for a minute you are 88, 89 years old. Your spouse of 60 years is dead. Your friends are all gone. Uh, maybe one of your children has reached late 60s and has passed away. Uh, you have horrendous physical ailments and illnesses. 
really serious stuff, diabetes, uh, heart disease, congestive heart failure, you're in constant pain, and you're lying in a bed you're never going to get out of, in diapers, which are irregularly changed by some nice lady who uh, doesn't want to change them because this is what she does for $8 an hour, and she resents it terribly. Mm-hmm. And these people say regularly, I want to die. And the moment they say that, they are labeled as having a mental illness or a mental disorder of severe depression. The psychiatrist comes running in, and they are drugged so that they stop making trouble and stop saying things that are upsetting to the staff and maybe even to other uh, uh, patients in the, in the center who um, are afraid of dying and don't want to die. So I agree with you that so many of the people we see have had these horrendous, confusing, difficult childhoods. But so many of them are simply depressed for existential reasons. Agreed. And I don't go into their childhood because it's irrelevant, I think, at this point. Well, yes, if they were if they were normally functioning people, they they had a job, they earned a living, they made a right. contribution to society, and now they're they're demented. Uh, well, these most physically... I don't work with demented people. Uh, you can't. I can't talk to a demen- You know, a serious person, a person with serious dementia. These are people with very clear thinking heads. Uh-huh. They simply have had enough. They are suffering. And they want to die. Yeah. You see? And, yes. and, and childhood experiences may have been bad. They may have been good. Many of these people describe lives of great vigor, love, health, mm-hmm. success. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are, but they, they, they're finished. Everything that makes life meaningful and joyful is gone. Yes. It's gone. And so people get snared by all of these definitions, whether they've had difficult childhoods and now are showing all kinds of disturbance, disturbed behavior. And let me read the psychiatrist. I want to read the exact um, definition of mental illness. Now, by the way, even the psychiatrists no longer call it mental illness. It's called mental disorders, right? It's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders because they've literally given up even though publicly they're not doing that, claiming that there's a biological cause that they understand is creating these stories. Or, you know, what we call a disturbance. So let me read it. And this is right out of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Clinically significant behavioral or psychological syndrome or patterns that occur in an individual, because we have to discuss in an individual, that is associated with present distress, disability, or with a significantly increased risk of suffering, death, pain, disability, or an important loss of freedom. So that the definition of what's called mental illness or mental disorders is not based on anything medical. It's based on bad behavior, unwanted behavior. Yes? Precisely. 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 And this was Zoss's argument. 
So yes. when well, people say Jesus was crazy because he said they, they they claim he said there's no such thing as as disturbed behavior, as dangerous behavior, there's no such thing as hallucinations, there's no such thing as crazy belief systems that we call delusional. They don't know Zas. They've never read Zas. They've never read anything that is critical. And they're afraid well, but, to read anything that's critical for a variety yeah, of reasons. Yeah. But the first thing I want you and I to agree is, as, as the basis of so much of this conversation is that when this doctor says we should look at the mental health of children and start treating it early, he's talking about behavior that somebody doesn't like. And exactly. two, somebody doesn't understand the reasons for the behavior. Well, he, he, what he says also, he says that today a staggering number of families struggle with a spectrum of conditions that affect the minds and brains of children and blah, blah, blah. And right. there we see a conflation. He, they, they, there are two universes of discourse here that are fighting with each other. One is the universe of discourse that talks about the mind, the mental, and so on. And the other one talks about the brain. But psychiatry conveniently conflates the two, so they go back and forth between mind and brain. I, and I always say, and I'm and I'm quite serious when I say this, that the brain has as much to do with unwanted behavior as the liver does. In and fact, by the way, it, both the brain and the liver do have stuff to do with it. But yes, the, the kinds the, of the things that are being diagnosed the, have nothing to do with the brain or the liver because they're diagnosed by behavior, not exactly. by anything that tests the brain or the liver or any other part of the body. And I think that's exactly. what's so critical here. Yeah. So these yeah. children are, are brought to attention by teachers. They're brought to attention by parents. Something is upsetting the adults around the child, particularly young children. That yes. is disturbing, and it's behavior. Let me make another point here that you and I understand. Okay. That were something to be discovered that physically, truly can predict the behaviors in question, it would no longer be called a mental illness or mental disorder. It would be called a physical illness. And you and I wouldn't be allowed to put our hands on it, nor would the psychiatrist. Right, right. It would go to real doctors like, real medical doctors, excuse yeah. me, yeah. Yeah. like neurologists like uh, 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 <laughs> livers, it would be gastroenterologists. Uh, it would be people who deal with the hormones and the chemical balancing of the body. It would immediately leave the entire DSM and go into the medical field. So the next yes, time well, somebody says to you, gee, you have a mental disorder, a mental illness, you'd see a doctor say, for what? For what physical illness should I see the doctor? Because we're talking about unwanted behavior. Exactly. And well, let me, introduce, let me introduce your audience to a, a word that they might have already heard, and that is decontextualizing. Now, when you look at a child who's acting up, I notice I did not say acting out, acting up in, in the class and the teachers at their wit's end uh, in, in trying to help him. What we do is we look at the child and we try to look inside his, quote, mind or brain, if you want to conflate the two. Well, the doctor, we do, because the DSM says the problem is in the individual. Yes, but it is. It, it is precisely not so. It is outside the individual in the context within which the child is living. Right. 
So in other words, it's between the child and his world and the people. It's between. Yes, yes. He uh, he never sees his father because his parents uh, don't talk to each other, um, and he has no friends. Uh, His older siblings are beating up on him or maybe even sexually molesting him. But if you don't look at that, you won't see it. You will only see him as mentally ill, uh, and we're off to the races with the medications. So what's the advantage of that to society, that society loves the idea? Oh, there's a tremendous advantage, uh, Larry. The the advantage of decontextualizing a child's behavior is that you don't look at how disordered our society is. Oh, you mean our society could be disordered? Well, you mean this kid who went in and shot up the classroom, shot some children eight, nine, ten times? Can you imagine this heavy caliber gun shooting a child a dozen times? There'd be nothing left. I mean, you think about it. I, you, I, can, yes, I, you can get ill. Yes, you can. And that has you something can. to do with society? Like maybe guns shouldn't be in the hands of anybody? By the way, by the definition, I, you know, I did a show. I, I, you didn't listen to that show. But when I read that mental disorder can be a disability or with significantly increased of suffering, death, pain, and disability. Anybody who owns a gun, it seems to me, fits that definition, except maybe a cop or somebody in the Army. Yeah, well, you know, you and I don't necessarily agree on that. Yeah, well, I'm going to take a stand on it because it fits the definition, and it seems to me the only way we could really look at our society and say we're going to change the attitudes towards guns, is to make them associated like we did with cigarettes. They were danger, and ultimately, it's disgusting. If you make it disgusting, it's like smoking. Did you smoke when you were younger? No. Are you, well, no, I, I never smoked cigarettes. I used to smoke for a short period of time. I smoked cigars. Oh, um, but, uh, but when my when my wife is about 22, 23 years ago, when my wife decided uh, to give up cigarettes, I said, "Well, the least I can do is give up cigars," and so I did. But I was right. never a heavy smoker, never. Yeah, well, I smoked as a as a teenager into my young adulthood, and at that time, eighty five percent of the adult population in the United States smoked because movie stars oh, yeah. smoked, media showed yeah. it. There was constant advertising of cigarettes. It was a it was cool to smoke. And within a few years, by the late 60s, it was now becoming disgusting to smoke. And this is just my personal opinion. You don't have to agree with it. I would like to see a day when the idea of taking a gun is disgusting too. By the way, the Bible talks about that. You know, people are always talking about the religion. You know, where you beat your, uh, how does it go? You beat swords into plowshares? Swords into plowshares, yeah. 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 Anyway. Well, no, I think, Larry, that... that, uh, the, the problems that our society faces um, are ones that uh, many people are bewildered by, and particularly young males. You remember we've had about 30 years or maybe 35 years of male bashing in our society uh-huh. uh, where men are portrayed in movies and on TV and in magazines as uh, commercials as oafs and idiots. Yes, um, yes, fools. And that, yes. that's only a part. That's only a part of it. Uh, and it's it's part. Uh, in fact, uh, and I know I won't make any friends with this remark, but I'm not going to retract it. That I believe that feminism has a downside, and this is what we're seeing. We're seeing the downside that men, young men, uh, are rebelling against 
uh, the discrimination that we've seen over the last 30 or 35 years. Well, let me years. ask you, because I, I, you know, I could take issue with that. I won't. Sure, um, sure. I think the, 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 thing, the one of the, the good things that happened in our society is not that men have been bashed by the media, but that women have, in fact, become, in many ways, the equal of men. And I don't see any society that can last in the world or be a just society unless women are seen under the eyes of the law and economics and every other way as women, as adults equal to uh, men. No, there's so no there's two issues here, and I think they're yeah. conflated. Yeah. One is the bashing of men, and, and, and I want to say it because there's an alternative image of men. It's not that they're just fools and oafs. They're cold-blooded, sadistic killers. Brutal, if, yes. Yes. You look at the at the violent films. There are very very few, although none are becoming violent women. You know, the women here is Electra, and and there's, there's all these vampire movies, in which there's a good well, female well, vampire who, who's on the yeah, side you know, of humanity. But over and over, the films like, that you see, men when, when, are violent, sadistic killers or complete idiots and oafs and fools. Yes, exactly. And but when you and I were high schoolers there would be periodically a fight in the playground at recess or right after school, and it would always be a couple of guys. What they were fighting about, I don't know. But now, but now there are fights, serious fights, between girls. Sometimes there are three or four girls in a fight, yeah. sometimes just one or two. But that, that kind of thing was never seen 50, right. 60 years ago. So what you have is an increase and an uptick of real violence, Yes. Tremendous amounts of violence as an image and, and, and as, as an actuality. Yes. So this young well, man is bathed in violence and an image that men don't count for anything. Yes, well, it, it, they're also... Joining there those women who for centuries haven't counted for anything. Yes. Um, yes. There are many components to this. One is the economic component where we are one, now... Yes. In a, we're, we're in a post-industrial society where upper body strength is nowhere near as important as it was, uh, say, in the 1940s, 50s, 60s. Yeah, except uh, for, for the so, football and basketball and, and sports. Yeah, yeah. But, but I'm talking about in industrial labor as well. Yes, you're but right. Now, yes. now we're into the information age where uh, upper body strength doesn't count for a darn thing. And so women can compete effectively with men, and they have. Um, and so men are reeling from that because they don't see any alternative. They've given up their position as the top dog, so to speak, and they don't know what to do with it. They don't know where to go with it. And so, as I said, this is a multidimensional thing. Uh, it, it's well, let me ask you a question because I think you raise an interesting issue, and I would like to get back to the topic at hand, but I think yeah, this does. Okay. Most of the great writers I read now are women. The really good books I read are being written by women who not too many years ago wouldn't have been published. We know that the people graduating college are disproportionately women. Yeah. Yes? Is it yes, possible yes. women are smarter than men? Well, so that in a post-industrial age where the upper body strength no longer really matters, we're at a disadvantage? It may be, you know, one of my quote-unquote discoveries, and I think I've told you about this, is that probably the greatest 
the greatest writer in the English language in forever, maybe even the greatest writer and poet ever to live, was probably a woman. And I'm talking about the author of the Shakespearean canon. There's a lot of evidence to demonstrate... Oh, I love it. You think Shakespeare really was a woman? Absolutely. I, I think the evidence is very, very strong. I can't say absolutely, of course. Uh, but the woman's name is Amalia Bassano Lanier, and all you have to do, ladies and gentlemen, is to go and Google her name. Uh, she, the, 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 evidence, the evidence against Shakespeare, I mean, William Shakespeare, the man, as being able to write that stuff, most of the plays, for example, took place in Italy, where Shakespeare never went. But this woman, Amalia Bassano Lanier, was the daughter of a Viennese Jew who who converted to Christianity, moved, uh, was brought to England by Henry VIII, um, and she was well situated um, to write about what she wrote about, the plays, the sonnets, the whole bit. And so, as I said, the greatest writer ever was probably a woman. So we have a condition now that, I don't want to go too far afield, that young men may be experiencing all kinds of angst, and all kinds of feelings of inferiority, losing their economic prowess and power. And the one thing that a man can have and be is successfully violent. You can really make a name for yourself by going in with a gun and shooting large numbers of people. Mm -hmm. Especially if you go shoot a politician, you'll become famous, really famous. Because if you can bring down somebody who's larger than life in the public mind then you are more powerful than, than that individual. Now, I don't know how much of this... By the way, I said in my last two shows, we're speculating, right? Well, I, We don't have I hard evidence it, for any of this. This is no, speculation, people, good speculation. People, people uh, talk about what could the motive of, of such a person be, like back to uh, Mr. Lanza and his, his horrible uh, killings of these children. What could the motive be? And the answer is there is no motive because the, this is the act of someone who is so deranged uh, that he could not formulate any intent to do a particular act to accomplish a certain thing. You don't think there's a I, fantasy there? I do. I think, I think, I think there was a very definite fantasy, and we're going to label it, I'll label it with you as deranged. But this <laughs> yes, was carried yes, out methodically, it was thought out, he was well-armed, it was completely well-planned, and he I don't know, and you don't know, and nobody will ever guess, because I think I don't want to go there, of what the actual fantasy was that he was carrying out. But I think there was an end goal. Well, I no, really no. Do. I, well, I guess we disagree, but I would, pull, I would call your attention to uh, what I have said in, in my book, Healing the Hurting Soul, that all so-called mental illness emerges from screwed-up families. And notice the first person he killed was his was mother. His mother. Oh yes, God only knows what went on between him and mommy. That's right. That's the question, Larry. Yeah. Is but so part of the fantasy, I would guess, over, goes back into his relationship with his mother. And I'd love to know, be a fly on the wall in that house, about what over went on between him years. and mommy in relation to the guns that she had collected, because yes, he but, used her guns. Yes. Yes. He killed her uh, and the children and himself with her guns. Yes. By the way, you could, uh, Freud could have a 
field day yeah, with this he, one. Yes, he could. Well, as I've often said, Larry, I know you're a psychoanalyst by training, but I've always said that Floyd was not wrong about everything. He was no, wrong yeah. about a few things, but he was not wrong about everything. I'm sure Floyd is glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah, he needs my endorsement. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, no, I would, I, w- I would want to be a fly on the wall in that house from the moment she discovered she was pregnant with him. I agree. That, uh, it goes I agree, and I agree with you completely. However... He was shaped by events in that house, which in turn fed up into society and came down from society, because I don't think that there were really, we, we have all kinds of magical barriers in our mind. The individual is somehow independent. It's an independent machine, separate from society. Oh, Thomas, yes. Yes, the Thomas, family is yes. affected by the economics, by the socialization, by all kinds of powerful factors. And I said in my first show, in a way, we're all really responsible for what is happening because we're all part of, of, and one of the reasons I'm doing this show is because I really feel a desperate need to somehow give out information and connect with people to change some of the attitude that we have towards uh, our materialism, towards the violence that is so... I mean, I just watched an episode of, of uh, Gunsmoke. Remember the Gunsmoke? Oh, sure, yeah. It's yeah. a wonderful show. And he kills at least one person in every episode. He had hundreds of episodes. And that's the resolution of the show. And he didn't care that he killed these people. He was a, perfect for the NRA when, when this... Uh, what's his name? Uh, who made that rant. The only protection... From a person, a bad person with a gun, is to have him shot by a good person with a gun. Yeah, yeah. That is such an oversimplification. Well, that's the metaphor. And we were raised on that kind of stuff. But somehow, we saw it as fantasy. And I think somewhere in this kid's head, that violence stopped being fantasy and became prime reality for him. And there was a goal. I I can't understand somebody carrying out... Uh, an act without motivation. Hold on a second. You know what? Somebody just came in. Maybe we can get another. You wouldn't mind if I call someone else. No, 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 Hello? Wait. Hello? Yeah, yeah. I just got here. I heard something very interesting just now. You're saying that the um, the metaphor of the only way to keep a um, person with a bad gun to protect yourself against a person with a bad gun is to have a, um, a good person with a gun. No, the, the, we're with this, that's, that's something we're criticizing. I know, and I happen to disagree with you. Um, name me a mass murderer who's gone into a police station and shot up a police station. Have you ever been under fire? Are you a veteran? Yeah. You are? Have yeah. you ever under fire? Were you, were you in Somalia or Iraq? That's an irrelevant, like that. irrelevant point. No, it isn't, because because in in that movie house in what was that Aurora, Colorado, where a guy goes in and he starts to shoot. I, I may have gotten the wrong. There are so many events that once the bullets start to fly and the dust and the screaming and it's dark and you're scared, you don't know what the hell is going on. Well, you're not giving anybody. By the way, by another quick, a quick thing. You remember Columbine? Yeah. There were armed men in the camp, in the school supposed to protect it, and when well, the shooting they started, they ran. Do you also know that people who with guns have? Um, By the way, this- we're not going to really discuss whether guns protect or they don't protect. Um, 
we really want to understand the psychology of this kid. And from my point of view, I would like to see how we can set up a situation where nobody picks up a gun. Because well, first off, I am for guns, but going back to your particular topic then, all of the mass murderers that I've uh, read about so far, they've all been on antidepressants. Well, so, we're going to get to that. You hold on. You hold on. We're going to talk now. about that at some length. <laughs> And, Lou, maybe we should start talking about it now? Yes, yeah, go for it. All right. First thing is that nobody – got to understand, we're going to talk about what we're going to get everybody in the country and we're going to put them on drugs because we're going to stop mental illness in childhood. And the only way they now try to treat so-called mental illness, which is really bad behavior that somebody doesn't like and doesn't understand, is to use drugs. That seems to be now the answer, and, and part of that is that we're no longer human beings, and I use the word soul metaphorically, we're no longer human beings who possess something precious that could be called a soul. We're machines, and if the machine goes haywire in some way, you've got to tamper with the brain yeah, I'm going with the to drug. agree with okay? you. I'm going so, to agree are we with, with me? I'm going to agree with you. Good. I, I happen to um, agree that, you know, the so-called ADHD and diagnosis probably isn't in the large amount of cases ADHD. It's probably just a bunch of kids with a lot of nervous energy. Um, and well, I don't Usually like the, very bright kids mm-hmm. who have trouble sitting in seats for five hours because boys, who are almost all the ADHD, I happen to agree with you. don't want to sit in seats. They want to be out on the I beach. Am, they I want am. to be playing man. ball. Well, well, look, look, yeah? let me give you anyway. an example. I, I had a... Hey, guys, guys, today. you're preaching to the choir, okay? The reason yeah, why good. I call So let's talk about the drugs. Thank you. So we're going to put millions of people on drugs because that's the only way you could treat them. There's going to be, there's no diagnosis for mental disorder, so they're going to throw the net out with uh, what this doctor I that we're talking about. I happen to agree with you, boy. Yeah, I understand. So let, let me go on with the topic. You can agree. It's terrific that you agree. But let's yeah, but I thought the major topic was going to be how the drugs and society... No, that's not the major topic. It's going to be one of the topics. But we started out with an article, and I want to go back up the show to the beginning, that a medical doctor suggests that we now start treating large numbers of children as potentially mentally ill. And the only treatment, really, that's going to be there is going to be drugs. Right? They're not going to work with families. We're not going to differentiate between you know, a, a, a family that raises a kid to be a good citizen. We're going to focus on the kids doing something as an isolated individual that upsets somebody, a teacher or the parents. And, and very often the kids who, who are disobeying parents have parents who don't know how to discipline them. Well, how much of an influence do you think drugs are or were or will continue to be? in the future in terms and, of... But I think all drugs should be Zoss, who we were talking about. He believed that anybody who wanted to take any drug should be allowed to. No, no, it's not and, my question. The reason I'm well, that, that, the, I believe that, and I think I, I, drugs... I, I, okay, people, look, all right, look, I'm trying to get on... So here's something that is very important. No, uh, no, drugs no are very sir, important. I'm going to put you on hold, okay? I'm going to put you on hold. Hello? Larry, I think... Are you, are you hearing me? Yeah. You hearing me? Yeah, I, I think I, he, if he I hung understand up. the gentleman's question, if I understand the gentleman's question, he's saying how much of, of an impact or how much how much of this are we going to be seeing? I think we're going to see a lot of it because drug companies are so powerful and yeah. they are they have lost the ability. No, I shouldn't say ability. That's a wrong word. But 
drug companies no longer manufacture drugs that extend our longevity. Yeah. Um, we have wiped out. We, if you take a look at the um, uh, United States mortality for uh, 1908 and compare it to 2008, you will see in that 100 years that what we Americans die of is very different, very different from from what we died of 100 years ago. We, 100 years ago, we died of measles, whooping cough, croup even, for example, and so on. Now we die of cancer, heart disease, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and drug companies are not able to manufacture drugs that can extend our longevity uh, when we've got heart disease and cancer and diabetes and so on, uh, with, with the exception of insulin. And even then, even then, we've got insulin-dependent diabetes and so on. But the point I'm trying to make is, so drug companies have had to go into other areas, and the best area for them to have gone into was the was the, this fiction that we call mental illness. Right. They pretend that they've got cures. They've got cures for that problem, and they right. invent diseases. That, for example, the latest the latest quote disease that will show up that will show up in the, the DSM five. They're going to put gambling addiction into uh, the DSM-5. Yes. If you go through the DSM-4, you could yeah. find something that labels everybody in the entire universe as having yeah. a mental disorder. Yeah. And this is going to continue. It's not going to... It's not yes. going to unless, and so what's going to happen, and this is what we're talking about, and I sense both of us are protesting against, is that they're going to start, which they've been doing now for a number of years, screening kids yeah. and yeah. screening adults. Well, right, we have National Depression Screening Day when I worked in my clinic once a yeah. year, and I think they still yeah. have it. They yeah. set up a booth in the lobby of the hospital with a big yeah. sign that says, do you think you're depressed? You sit down, and within a minute, anybody who sits down is depressed. Exactly. Do you know Any why? unhappiness is immediately depression. I can, I can mention, I can mention several, several situations which will make a person present as depressed. Let's start with um, some some obvious ones. Well, let's stay with the idea of the drug. Everybody is going to be labeled something. All these kids, with, 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 they'll have a, a, an aide. They'll have somebody who's not particularly well-trained. Uh, Take some one of these simplistic uh, scale devices, mm-hmm. a series of questions, and ask the questions. And depending upon what the kid says, and almost any question, you and I know that when you're taught to make diagnoses, you're taught to get the goods. Yeah. To make the diagnosis. So you've got to find yeah. something wrong, and anything that you want to label wrong is wrong. Because moral judgments are easy to make on any behavior, and then pretend it's the illness. And these yes. kids are going to be put then on those drugs, and the guy's point was good, <clears throat> although, you know, I don't know what, he didn't really want to seem to engage the conversation, but he talked about the idea that these drugs are dangerous in the sense that they work as uppers, the antidepressants. Yeah. And you and I have been involved for a number of years with conferences, etc. cetera. Uh, I, I think Britain now has banned all of these antidepressant SSRIs, the reuptake inhibitors, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, uh, from anybody under 18. Because if you take somebody who's depressed and angry, you don't want to stimulate him. You don't want to cause an intense upsurge of emotion. Yeah. 
And I wonder how many of the soldiers we're seeing now who have been drugged. Because anybody who gets upset in combat now has PTSD. Yes. To me, that's one of the most disgusting labels. You send somebody into hell, and when they come back, they have trouble getting to grips with what they've seen and what they've done. Mm-hmm. Yes? Exactly. Exactly. Yes, and so we call them now mentally disturbed. And I think you started to work with some of these individuals, and they got upset when you suggested they really weren't sick. Well, no, Did you tell I, me a story I, about I, that? No, I, no, I have some familiarity with, with PT. I had a son who came back from Iraq uh, very troubled about some of the things he'd done there. Uh, right. And I think, I think the, important, the important thing to understand is not what, with, with regard to uh, what we used to call combat fatigue or shell shock or whatever, the important thing to understand is it's not what happens to you that's important. It's what do you do in yes. that situation. That yes. is what. That is what uh, makes people very, very upset with the nightmares and so on and so on. We've all been through hell. I mean, you and I lived through World War II. I lived in, uh, in, uh, in conditions of semi-starvation in England during the war uh, with bombings and all that thing. Uh, and I, you know, I still have some issues, but but they've not they've not degraded my ability to make a living, to raise a family, blah 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 blah. Because right. I didn't, I I wasn't an active participant. Right. What happens to a person raised in a family where you're told it's not good to be violent and it's good to be kind and mm-hmm. decent, and then you're trained to be a killing machine, and you yeah. go into a situation. I also wonder how many of these guys who are in Iraq, especially wars that started at Vietnam, where many of the people felt that it wasn't justified that they should even be there to begin with. Yeah, yeah. That that they were, that, you know... That they were doing doing violence and receiving violence to something that uh, had all kinds of difficulty with a good moral underpinning for it. But but we are back to the drugs. We are a drug consuming society. Yeah. I mean, we and, and we for example the latest phony illness the latest phony illness is low T low testosterone. Oh yes, you're right. I saw it. Yes. And, yeah. So and we. Uh, and and th- these drugs have hideous side effects. I mean, they'll even tell you what the side effects are. They're all just awful. But it's a condition which uh, we, we got a pill to cure it. And the uh, 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 restless leg syndrome is nothing more than the side effects of other medications or drugs that you're already on. Yes, erectile I agree. Dis- erectile dysfunction is a phony disorder. It is a byproduct of aging in men, uh, diabetes, uh Blood pressure issues and so on, and psychological lab- problems. Uh, of course, but you know, <laughs> somebody sent me a great cartoon, uh, and it's two old people, and the wife has just put on her diaper, which is in the shape of a thong, mm-hmm. <laughs> and her body is exposed, and it, the, the caption is his saying, "Dear sweet Lord of Death, take me now." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What happens when you're young and you're horny and your wife is really beautiful is very different than when you're in your 70s and, and you're tired and you're old and nobody looks like they used to look and you have all kinds of illnesses. Um, there's all kinds of reasons for, for inability or a disinclination for sex. And we have diagnoses for disinclination, inability to perform. Um, yes. Right? 
And so we yes. have a drug for everything. Yeah. And so it's a small jump. It's a small jump from a medication for a legitimate illness to uh, a phony illness where you take, could even be the same drug. Could even yes. be the same drug. Well, you and I know that the, the, the SSRIs are used for all kinds of diagnoses. You yes. have a small number of psychiatric drugs, uh, psychotropic drugs, that are used for 500 different diagnoses. Yes, yes. That doesn't exist that, in real medicine. Lie. By the way, it couldn't exist. That, gives the lie. that gives the lie to the idea that there is a biochemical basis for each individual one of those mental illnesses. Yes. That, that gives the lie. If there, are, if there are 500 diagnoses, there must be, one would imagine, 500 different chemical imbalances, one, one to, a one-to-one -one relationship. Like diabetes is indeed a disease of uh, an imbalance. Uh, it, it demonstrates a measurable by, imbalance. Me measure, absolutely. Your, your blood sugar level at resting or uh, yes. upon awakening, that's your blood sugar level. That's, a, that's an imbalance. It's measurable. There's no argument about that. But and it's predictable what will happen within certain parameters it if it goes yes. on for any length of time. Absolutely. Now, and if, all if of you, the mental, let's take depression. Most people who get depressed, it's time limited. Something well, happens, you know. And, and, say, and, well, it's, a, it's a serotonin imbalance, but the point is we don't know how to measure serotonin in a, li a living human organism, and most of the serotonin in the body is in the gut and not in the brain. So well, you know, the people the who originally invented the, uh, the, the problem, you know, the, the idea that serotonin was the cause of depression, ultimately recanted. Yes. I don't know, you, you remember yes. Elliot Valenstein? Of course. Sure. And he had this fabulous book called Blaming the Brain. Yes. And in it, he talks about the whole development of the story about serotonin and how the yes. original authors of the original studies recanted and said that ultimately they didn't believe that serotonin had anything to do with anybody being depressed. Yes, but, you know, his great contribution, since we're on, we're on uh, Valenstein, is his remark about what, what he calls ex-juventibus reasoning, which is that you have this drug, this medication, that you have prior identified as an antidepressant, and then you give it to somebody whose diagnosis you're not sure of, but you give it to somebody, and if he becomes less depressed, then he must have been depressed because this, so, this antidepressant <laughs> you have caused him to get better. And that is what he calls uh, out of, the extraventibus means out of right. treatment. Because you, you assume that because your treatment was effective that he had the illness. Right, right, right. Well, you know, we sort of drifted off about the idea of, uh, the, as the caller had suggested, uh, we all want to know, every time I hear that somebody was violent, a young man was violent, um, at Columbine, Klebold, who was one of the, the killers, uh, yeah. was on psychiatric drugs, yes. and one of his victims sued the drug companies. I don't know where the suit is, because the media doesn't follow these things. But the, one of the young men who was shot and recovered said that well, you, know why was, the media, huh? you know why the media doesn't cover it? The media well, doesn't because cover the advertising it. pays for the media. Precisely. Precisely. So, so what you have then is that Klebold was a lovely guy, 
who once he started taking the drugs had a profound change in his personality. Yeah. yeah. And he believed, as the victim, that this had to do something with the drugs. And you and I know that there have been dozens and dozens of stories. Um, who wrote a Let Them Eat Prozac? That David Healy. Yes. Whose career was cut short when he came to the United States and wrote the book Let Them Eat Prozac, uh, which was the original... Uh, and still very popular uh, antidepressant, producing a yeah. stimulant effect, yeah. um, that a certain number of people become violent after taking the drug or going off the drug. So there's a three-week period from starting the drug and a three-week period of coming off when there's a potential. Now, most people who take the drug don't become violent. But the fact is that many of the young men who are violent, and again, it's impossible to get good statistics, did take the drug. And I'm wondering yeah. about this kid. You know, was he seeing somebody? Did he have a psychiatric well, evaluation? Was he put on? This, this, guy, no, this guy, James Holmes, who uh, I guess he's the Aurora, Colorado uh, murderer, was seeing a psychiatrist. So he was? what does that tell He was seeing a psychiatrist. He was. You know, well, if yes. you saw a psychiatrist, then you know he was on some kind of drug. Absolutely, but the point I'm, I'm raising now is that merely labeling people as mentally ill uh, with all of the problems there, well, one of the things that I object to is who is going to do the labeling. I see a lot of people who are labeled mentally ill by nurse practitioners yes. who have minimal training in, in uh, behavioral and, and, and psychological and, and psychiatry. Minimal, but they call them depressed. And the fact that a person just lost his wife or his father, uh, uh, he's not depressed, he's bereaved. And there's a, very, there's a big difference there that nurse practitioners are oh, not Oh, you're kidding. You mean when I'm you lose kidding. a loved one and you're sad? Let me tell you. You're not depressed, you, Larry, though? Larry, <laughs> you're bereaved? I see so many disability claimants. I see between five and six hundred a year and I look at their hist I, I I get their histories from them and then I compare what I know in an hour from them with what the accompanying medical documentation says and you'd be amazed at how few people, MDs, nurses and so forth, take an extensive history. The answer is they don't. And so they don't know about these predisposing causes of the behavior that's labeled mental illness, which is, in fact, bad behavior that has nothing to do with real illness. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I mean, because I, I really have to keep that clear. Because what happens is when you start sliding into using the word, there's a magic in words. They become real. Unless you it's realize that you're always talking about a metaphor. A metaphor we live by. Right. Yes, a metaphor a built into a story we live by in which it will be cured by treatment and the treatment will be some kind of chemical. Uh, after somebody has done a, a, a very often, even the psychiatrist in, a, in, a, in a, an emergency room, does it's an average of 12 minutes of discussion before the script is written. Yeah. But a exactly. number of studies that suggest maybe 12, 13 minutes yeah. Because you got to yeah. get on to the next. Yes. 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 Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, so no, now we're that, confronted with children who are going to be, because that was really the original topic of the show, that uh, we're going to 
prevent mental illness by screening millions of children. Although, you know, somebody else said to me, why don't we arm the children in the classroom? <laughs> and he was, I thought he was kidding. He's a guy I work with. He was dead yeah. serious. Because yeah. Yeah. the NRA wants to arm the teachers. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're going to train the teachers how to use a gun. <laughs> Imagine yeah. a firefight in the classroom. Yeah. Uh, a yes, teacher. I can, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, I'm laughing because so so we have there's going to be a mass screening. This guy calls for that. Yeah, but I have to I have to interject something, Larry, and it's part of the American ethos that I think gets in our way, and that is this: let us suppose you've got someone. Uh, it could be a child, it could be an adult, it doesn't matter. A child to whom something terrible has happened, like uh, um, uh, the child has a mother who just committed suicide. Okay, let's say let's say that for the argument now. The, my feeling is, my feeling is this: we have to accept the notion that there's nothing that we can do to to help that situation. That that we cannot we can't drug the kid, we can't do anything because we cannot bring the kid's mother back. That is that it may be an existential point of view, but we have to accept the fact as Americans that there are limits on what we can do. In, in dealing with reality, and we Americans don't like that because we feel we feel that with enough goodwill and enough money, we can solve every problem. Yes. And the answer, from yes. my point of view, is no, we can't. Yeah, no, the stuff you have to live with, but that's a tough thing for people in our society to buy because we're always being told you can buy your way out of it. Yeah, yeah. If you buy a new TV, a new car, you're going to be happy. And, and the goal is you can't be unhappy. You know, I'm living in, in an over-55 community in which more and more people all the time are sick. You can't talk about what hurts. You uh -huh. can't talk about what scares you. You really can't. Yeah. You have mm -hmm. to be happy. Everybody has to be happy. Everything is going to turn out all right. Um, we don't know how to deal with, you know, it's like what I learned with my patients in, in, the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the nursing home. You drug them because you have to do something. Yes, with, which only makes the whole thing worse, right? Yes. Well, and I have you're right. We, we have to accept that we're going to die. And yeah. that's well, something we really are not prepared in our society to do. Yeah. We're going yeah, to die. I, I, I have a friend who was a physician. Uh, he doesn't do clinical medicine anymore. But one of the things he taught me, we, we've, we've known each other for a number of years and worked together. He's, a, he's a, an internal medicine, so he has, he has only tangential relationship with psychiatry. But that what he said is we are taught in medical school that you never allow a patient to leave your office without him or her thinking that you've helped them in some way. And, and that, I think, is a very insidious, yeah. very insidious uh, uh, position to take. I mean, it, it, Hippocrates hypocr said, first do no harm. But here, it's the idea that you cannot let the patient leave your office without thinking that you've helped them in some way. That if this is an 8- or 10-year-old kid who has just lost his mother to, to anything, to suicide, to an automobile accident, it doesn't matter. The point is that, that you there's nothing you can do. Except to try to comfort the kid. Yeah, but you, you've got to be – the best thing you can do, as far as I'm concerned, is to say as little as possible. Hold yes, I agree. Hand, hold the kid's hand, give him a Kleenex or her a Kleenex, and there's, because you cannot bring the mother back. Yes, and the patients who are dying in my, in my uh, uh, nursing home tell me, and I say, they say, I want to die. I'm a, I say, I understand. 
Yeah. And it is yeah. so powerful when I say to them, I understand. Yeah. I understand well, you know, how you people, feel. Because there there's nothing we can society. do about it. But Larry, there are people in our society who, and they're picking up on what they think John Bowlby said, uh, that any, any good surrogate can substitute for a mother. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, that's I, right. I, I, I want to look, look at the data on which that was based. I suspect that since Bowlby died a number of years ago, he didn't see what kind of society we're living in now where kids are growing up with who knows what kind of parent, parenting. Yeah. I, I, I just wonder about the data on which Bowlby made that statement that any woman can step into the role, an aunt, a cousin, an older sister, I've got a one-word answer for that that's probably not uh, acceptable on the radio. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I guess I don't, I've never been uh, – uh, I've used the word shit many times and bullshit many times. It's never been um, – uh, I don't think there's anybody who, who uh, is there to, uh, to censor this. Anyway, uh, Lou, let's finish up. My son has been trying to reach me now for 15 minutes, and if they can't reach us in the first 10 minutes – they go into panic mode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, thank you for being on. And I think we covered a lot of topics. And I'm going to yeah. try to summarize very quickly. Okay. okay. That disturbing behavior, disturbed and disturbing behavior, which can be shown by anyone at any time, uh, is called mental illness. And it's not an illness. It's a metaphor, a metaphorical illness. And that treatment is metaphorical treatment that, you can't predict, based upon a diagnosis, and we didn't cover that well enough, that we can't predict by a diagnosis who will behave violently and who will turn in on themselves and who will overcome it and become a great artist. Uh, our ability to predict violence is terrible, so that when we do see these children, they're going to all be drugged into insensibility. Uh, and, and it'll produce, I don't think, any less violence, maybe even more violence. That we're bathed in a society of violence and fantasy that all problems can be solved, and that the doctor uh, is the solver of all of these problems. The expert has to tell you how to raise your children, how to live, and that um, I don't know the answer to any of this, but I do know uh, that we're not going to stop violence. I don't know. Maybe we, we, I think we do have to have some legislation, don't you, about these uh, AK-47s with 50-round cartridges? Well, yes, I think that there's probably some merit to the idea that, that, that people should not have the magazines of, uh, oh, let's say, over 20 for the sake of argument. Maybe that's too big, but... Uh, but to focus the problem on guns, I think, is, is Yeah, no, you have to focus it on the society. I think on we the agree. society, yeah. And, yeah, and focus absolutely. it on what I believe that has produced a fantasy in an individual so that he's doing something that is bizarre and crazy and dangerous and disgusting to us, but is very meaningful. Remember, Hitler thought he was an answer to the world's problems. Yeah. yeah. Can I make one closing statement? Sure. I, okay, uh, I, my feeling is I'd, I'd like to get people to, to recognize that the, the use of the word mental illness derives from the concept of mind, and mind is not a scientific concept. It's been a part of our language from before Shakespeare. If you look mm -hmm. at Shakespeare, if you look at Shakespeare, you see that the term mind runs through it like a river, whether it's nobler in the mind to suffer 
it is the mind that gives the body uh, beauty. No, that's from the, that's from the, uh, the taming of the shrew, and I don't think I'm quite right. But uh, but anyway, the, the word mind occurs frequently in Shakespeare, and it is not a scientific concept, and yet we treat it as if it is. Well, we treat it literally with a noun, and I mm-hmm. forgot where I read it. If you want to use the word mind, use it as a verb. We don't have minds. We mind. That is, we think, we imagine, we create, we do things. Right? You do things. Yes. Yes. So mind is a verb. And you can't treat... It's a word that we use because it helps us understand ourselves. Yes. I do not need... I I can deal with other people... Uh, and, and never use the word mind. But fact, you know what, Lou? I'm going to do another agent. show just on the idea of mind Great. and self. But that'll be not You're tonight. Me? So okay. thank you. All right. Have a great, healthy new year. Yes, yeah, you too. And uh, again, thanks a lot and take care. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye.